Well, good morning and uh, happy new year. Happy post-Christmas. Good to see you. Glad you're here. Um, I've been thinking this morning about something that a friend of mine at my previous church who used to volunteer in the children's ministry would say, whenever the kids there didn't like something, she would say, you get what you get and you don't throw a fit. And, and I, or the first time I heard that, I thought, man, that's so perfect. And so I've, I've said that a lot, but it occurs to me with all the complaining that I've done about 2020, that maybe that should be said back to me, right? You get what you get and you don't throw a fit. We don't know what 2021 will hold. Of course, we wanna believe it's gonna be a better year, and I think in many ways it will be, but whatever happens, worrying about it now won't help, and complaining about it when it happens won't help. You know, what will help is understanding the words of that song we just sang, Jesus reigns forevermore. He is in charge, He he is the king of the universe. By right, because he created it, and also by redemption, because he died to redeem us. He is our king. And so when he's our king, everything ends up well. We know how the story ends. So keep that in mind as we go forward. This year, uh, we we look forward to a a good year coming up. And, And this coming week, if you're subscribed to my daily email, you'll get some advice this next week on how to prepare yourself for the start of a new year, how to, how to make sure that this coming year is a year when you know Christ better than ever before, when you draw closer to him than ever before. And that, I think, is the key to making a year the best it can be. If you need a devotional book, uh, I'm, the book Finding Jesus that I wrote last year, we've got a few copies outside on the little black table on your way out. Uh, and if you want one, you can put the money in an envelope and drop it in the offering plate Or if you don't have the money for it, just take one. Pay me back later or don't. It's okay. Especially if you're going to give it to someone who doesn't know Jesus. Take it free of charge. Give it to them so they can learn about Jesus through that book, hopefully. Again, that's that's with my blessing because you're not stealing from the church. You're stealing from me and I'm giving you permission, okay? So uh, 2 Kings 7, 3 through 9, 2 Kings 7, 3 through 9 You may not know this, you may not know the number of years since this, but it's been 110 years since the Titanic sank. Yes, 110 years since Rose and Jack couldn't fit on that door. And, you know, okay, I shouldn't laugh, we shouldn't joke, because literally 1,500 people died. They they drowned, they froze in the icy waters of the North Atlantic, and it was tragic, but the greater tragedy was not the number of people who died, but the fact that they didn't have to die. Here's, uh, here's a, a paragraph from an article by Greg Osmocopoulos. He says, the Titanic was certified to offer lifeboat space to 1,178 people, but of the 20 lifeboats lowered overboard, only a few were filled to capacity. Several were less than half full. In all, only 711 passengers were, and crew were rescued, while 40% of the total lifeboat spaces remained unfilled. Meanwhile, hundreds of people floated in the open water wearing life jackets near the 20 unfilled lifeboats. Only one of the vessels went back in search of other survivors. Listen to this sentence. The rest, with room to spare, remained at a safe distance observing the horrific scene, comforting one another, and praising God that they'd been spared. Why did they do this? These were not monstrous people. They were most of them wealthier than you and me, but still ordinary people. 
They, 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 they failed to do the decent thing, the kind thing, the good thing because of ignorance and fear. Ignorance because they believed that the lifeboats weren't able to hold a full, uh, a full load of people. And fear because they saw those people thrashing in the water yards away and thought, if we go over there, they'll swamp us and we'll drown too. And today, I'm here to tell you, American Christianity suffers from the same two problems. Ignorance in that we don't seem to think it matters that people outside the church don't know about Jesus, haven't heard the gospel, aren't home with the Savior who died to redeem them. Ignorance because we just ignore the fact that people by the millions are going through life without a relationship with their heavenly Father. And fear, and fear because we're afraid of those who aren't like us. We're afraid of what happens if they, whoever they are, get in charge. We treat them as enemies rather than as lost brothers and sisters who need to be brought home. So today, we're closing a year in which we've talked about the story that God is writing in your life and in mine, the story of redemption, of bringing peace to chaos. Today, we're going to talk about how that story needs to be told how that story needs to be heard. And we're going to look at an event from the book of 2 Kings that you may not be familiar with unless you are a serious student of the scriptures. You probably won't know this story well, but it's a story about four unlikely heroes. We're going to talk about how if God, if we let God work in our lives in this coming year, we'll be more like those four than like the people who sat in those lifeboats in the Titanic and thanks God that they weren't drowning. And we're going to talk about some excuses that we have that keep us from getting there, okay? So, a little background on our passage. Elisha was the protege of Elijah. You probably know Elijah, camel's hair, calling down fire from heaven. Elijah's protege was a young man named Elisha. God wanted to confuse us, so he called two people with, a very sim- with similar names, right? Elijah was literally carried up into heaven alive, one of two people in history who never died. The other was Enoch. In the book of Genesis, Elisha saw him go up to heaven and then he took charge. And believe it or not, Elisha was even more powerful in his ministry and his preaching and his miracles than his mentor Elijah had been. He had an, an odd sort of partnership with Joram, the king of Israel, who was not a believer. He was a pagan like his father Ahab had been. And yet God used uh, Elisha to warn Joram over and over again Whenever their enemy, the Aramites, the, the uh, Arameans, that is the Syrians today, were about to attack. Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, got very angry because anytime he would try to invade or attack, the Israelites would see them coming. And he, he was meeting with his officers and said, one of you guys is a spy. One of you guys is selling me out because every time I make a move, the Israelites see us coming. And one of the officers said, no, sir, what's happening is the, the, the prophet Elisha in Samaria, he, uh, he tells the king of Israel what you say in your bedroom, which had to be a disconcerting fact for, uh, for Ben-Hadad. And so what he did was he invaded and attacked the city of Dothan, where Elisha lived. He just sent a whole army to kill this one man. Now, this isn't what we're preaching on today. What we're looking at, it just gives you some background. Elisha, I love this story. Elisha and his servant were standing at night looking out at at the hillside at the the ring of enemy soldiers circling the little town of Dothan. And the servant said, we're all lost. We're dead meat. And Elisha prayed and he said, Lord, open his eyes. And the servant looked again and then he saw 
horses and chariots of fire all over the hillside, many more angelic warriors than the human soldiers who were arrayed against them. And what happened was God struck those soldiers blind and, and Isaiah, I'm sorry, Elisha literally led them by the hand to the city of Samaria, the capital of Israel. And there the Israelites feasted them and set them free so they'd go home and tell uh, Ben-Hadad to leave them alone. And by the way, probably a pretty good prayer for you and me to pray when we're discouraged, when we're in doubting Just say, Lord, open my eyes. Help me to see what you're doing in the world around me. Help me to see the opportunity that lays before me instead of just the obstacles that stand in my way. But Ben-Hadad decided, okay, if I can't kill Elisha, I'm just gonna invade no matter what. And he invades again, and he surrounds the city of Samaria, the capital of Israel, and lays siege to that town. And this time, God chooses not to warn Joram, the king of Israel. And so this siege goes on for days and weeks and months to the point all the food and water is cut off, all the supplies are cut off from the city, and the people begin to starve. And starving people begin to do desperate things. They start to, they start to take inedible things and turn them into priceless treasures. The Bible says that during this siege, a donkey's head was sold for two pounds of silver and a handful of dove droppings for two ounces Situation devolved into greater chaos than that, and people actually began killing and eating their own family members. And Joram, the king of Israel, was so angry at Elisha for not warning him that he sent a detachment of soldiers to kill Elisha in his home in Dothan. And Elisha held them up by saying, listen, go back to your master and tell him, this time tomorrow there's going to be so much food in your city, you won't know what to do with it. And that's where we pick up the story with verse 3 of 2 Kings chapter 7. Now, there were four men who were lepers at the entrance to the gate. Why were they at the entrance to the gate? If you had leprosy, you couldn't live inside the city. You had to live outside. These men were homeless and dying slowly and painfully. It says in verse 3, And they said to one another, Why are we sitting here until we die? If we say, Let's enter the city, the famine is in the city, and we will die there. And if we sit here, we'll die also. So now come, let's go over to the camp of the Syrians. If they spare our lives, we shall live. And if they kill us, we shall but die. You hear the logic, right? If we go there and they, and they capture us and they treat us like prisoners, at least we'll get to eat. If they kill us, at least we'll die quickly. Either way, it seems like a good course of action. Verse, verse five, so they arose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. But when they came to the edge of the camp of the Syrians, behold, there was no one there. For the Lord had made the army of the Syrians hear the sound of chariots and of horses, the sound of a great army, so that they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel is hired against us, the kings of the Hittites and the kings of, the, kings of Egypt, to come against us. So they fled away in the twilight and abandoned their tents, their horses, and their donkeys, leaving the camp as it was, and fled for their lives. And when these lepers came to the edge of the camp, They went into a tent and ate and drank and carried off silver and gold and clothing and went and hid them. Then they came back and entered another tent and carried off things from it and went and hid them. Listen to this. Then they said to one another, we are not doing right. This day is a day of good news. If we're silent and wait until the morning light, punishment will overtake us. Now, therefore, come, let us go and tell the king's household. And these four lepers go back into the city and they tell the good news they've heard and the city is saved. But let me ask you a question. Why did God do this miracle in secret? In the middle of the night, 
The, the enemy soldiers encamped around Samaria hear this sound of a mighty army. They're terrified. They run for the hills. They leave behind all their possessions, including lots of food. Why didn't God let the people inside Samaria know they were rescued? See, theoretically, if no one had discovered it, they would have stayed inside that city, hunkered down, starving for days more to come. They would have looked out the window every day and seen, oh, those tents are still out there, the army's still out there, and they would not have been delivered. Why didn't God let them know? Well, the answer is he did through these four. God, I believe, did this miracle the way he did because he was giving these four forgotten, despised lepers the opportunity to be heroes. And we have that same opportunity. We have that same chance. You see, we carry the good news. And the video that James made to introduce this sermon, made a whole video for one sermon. I'm so grateful to him. It said it. The gospel is not good advice. It's good news. See, this is what separates Christianity. One of the things that separates Christianity from all other religions. You look at Every world religion I've examined at all has a good ethical system. I'll put it this way. I would love to be next door neighbor with someone who's a devout Jew, a devout Muslim, a devout Hindu, a devout Mormon. The ethical system, if they follow it, will make them good people, people you enjoy living near. But Christianity is more than that. Christianity is more than good ethics. It's more than good morals. It's more than good advice. It is good news. Religion says, do this and you will live. The gospel says, God has done this so you can live. Other religions say, here's your mission. The gospel says, here's your salvation. If you'll have it, here's your salvation. That's good news. How do, we, how do we keep such a thing to ourselves? How can we, how can we go in and, and take what God has given us through a literal miracle, Jesus becoming a man, dying on a cross, rising again? How can we plunder that tent and just keep it to ourselves? How can we not at least tell people, hey, come here, here's what you're looking for. Back in the late 90s, I became pastor of First Baptist Church of Stockdale, Texas, south of Seguin, just this side of San Antonio. Nice little town, 1,200 people. I mean, you knew everyone in town, whether they went to your church or not. Great church. And one of the unusual things about First Baptist Stockdale is they have a beautiful building. Now, I, I don't mean to poke at our own people, but we're not known for beautiful church buildings. You know, beautiful, ornate, cathedral-like buildings, that's, that's other denominations. Baptists tend to be more functional. But for some reason, when First Baptist Stockdale decided to build a new church building, this was just a few years before I came to be pastor, they chose to build a very, very pretty building with these stained glass windows that are just perfect. Everyone tells a story. I mean, we've got some nice ones here, but these all have a, an image on them of some story from the scriptures. And you walk in and you go, okay, there's Mary, Joseph, and Jesus. Okay, well, there's, there's, uh, there's Abraham and Isaac going up on Mount Moriah. Oh, there's, there's Moses with the Ten Commandments. In fact, after I became pastor, they said, you know, we'd really like it if you'd preach on every one of those windows. And so I did. I didn't stand on the windows, you understand. I, I preached on the story of every one of those windows one by one. And, and then I realized something. I, I realized that building is a perfect metaphor for what's wrong with the church today. 
We're telling these incredible stories, stories of salvation, stories of the glory of God, but only to the people inside the building. Because if you go outside, I mean, even there in First Baptist Stockdale, if you walk outside and you look at those buildings, look at those windows from the outside, you don't see a story at all. You just see colored glass. You have to be inside the building to see the story. That's what's wrong with the church. If you're inside, you're probably hearing good news. You're probably hearing good things. If not, you need to find a different church, right? But what about the people outside? What about the people who are never going to go to a church, who are never going to turn on religious television? And frankly, I'm glad because a lot of religious television these days is not good. They're never going to pick up a gospel tract and read it. They're never going to pick up a Bible and start reading. They're never going to attend a service, a, a crusade or a revival. What about them? How do they get the good news? How do they hear? That's our job. We are those four lepers. We found salvation. Now, if we keep it to ourselves, God's still going to save us. His, the blood of Jesus can, can rescue us from anything. But how will we feel when we stand before our Father on Judgment Day and say, well, I really didn't try. There was a hymn that we used to sing when I was a kid, ironically, because we didn't really live up to it, but it was, must I go and empty-handed? Must I meet my Savior's soul? Not one soul with which to greet him. Must I empty-handed go? And that's the state for a lot of us, I'm afraid. So why? Well, I want to talk to you about five excuses, five objections we have to being those four lepers, to, to sharing the good news with others, all right? Number one, you can't share your faith like you could years ago. People don't want to feel like you're forcing your religion on them. And this is true. I mean, I, I, in my own lifetime, I've seen how it's changed. When I was a teenager, a young adult, people were willing to hear a presentation of the gospel. You could, you could learn uh, the Roman road or the four spiritual laws or, or evangelism explosion. You could knock on someone's door and you could say, hey, I'd like to share with you the most important news I know of. Are you willing to listen? And they'd give you five minutes. These days, people are much less willing to do that. People don't necessarily want to hear, don't want to be preached to. The good news is they still want to talk about spiritual things. In fact, there is, I would say, a greater interest in spiritual things today than there was 20, 30 years ago. Back then, they might listen just out of a sense of politeness. Now, they really want to dialogue with you, but that's the key. They don't want to hear a canned presentation. They want to dialogue. They want to share what they think. They want to ask you questions, and they want you to answer them. And, and this excuse, while it's true, is not valid. You know why? Because it was even more that way in the first century. The more non-Christian in culture that our society becomes, and it's becoming less Christian culturally every year we live, the more it becomes like it was in the book of Acts. And while that will be more challenging for you and me, more uncomfortable for you and me, I think it gives us a tremendous opportunity because the first Christians, they didn't grow out and greet people who were eager to hear the good news. They, did, they weren't running up against pagan neighbors and Jewish neighbors who said, hey, tell me about this Jesus. No, their Jewish neighbors thought they were heretics. Their Greek neighbors thought they were nuts. And yet the gospel spread like wildfire turned the world upside down in a couple of centuries. How? What happened? Well, it wasn't because of the, the strong morals and ethics of the early Christians, although they did live a distinctively beautiful life. 
But that wasn't what won people over. Their Jewish neighbors were living according to the same commands they were. And their Greek neighbors thought the rules they lived by didn't make any sense at all. So it wasn't about ethics. It wasn't about uh, a being good, you might say. The, the sociologist Rodney Stark, sociologist at Baylor, I'll give him that plug, uh, has written a series of books about how Christianity won in the early days, in the early years, in the Roman Empire. And it comes down to the same thing over and over again, kindness, compassion, and love. Not just being good. Can we be honest? Sometimes, some of the most moral people you and I know are some of the least appealing. No, it, it, it's more than that. It's compassion, it's kindness, it's love. It's, it's an epidemic breaking out in the city and everyone fleeing for the hills except the Christians who stay behind to care for those who are sick and dying. Not worried about their own lives because if they die, they go to be with Jesus. And if they live, they serve him. It's Christians who instead of saying, it's about my rights, say it's about my neighbor. It's about, it, it, it was Christians who, who said, we're going to take care of the widows in our community, even those who aren't believers in Jesus. We're going to take care of the poor, even though we ourselves aren't rich. And that's what changed the hearts and minds of millions and millions of people in the ancient world, because no one lived that way except the followers of Christ. And what that means for us today is that every time you show kindness in the name of Jesus to an individual person or to a group of people, you're breaking down yet another barrier to the gospel. Kindness matters. Compassion matters. Number two, objection number two, good deeds are really all you need. Now, let me, I'm going to give you a quote, and I want you to tell me by raising your hand if you've heard this before. Uh, it is supposedly by St. Francis of Assisi. It says, preach the gospel at all times, and when necessary, use words. How many of you have heard that? Okay, yeah, probably have. All right, it's baloney. Don't, don't quote it. Don't put it on your Facebook page. Number one, St. Francis almost certainly never said that. People who study him will tell you he was a Dominican friar, which meant that he was a preacher. That's what the Dominicans did. They went from place to place preaching the gospel. Preachers don't tend to say, you know, you don't really need to use words. But more importantly, it's not biblical. One of my favorite scriptures, 1 Peter 3.15 Always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you the reason for the hope that you have. Always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you the reason for the hope you have. That says two things. Number one, we should be living in such a way that people ask us questions. Why do you live this way? Why do you believe what you believe? How can you have such hope, such peace, such joy? Number two, we need to be ready to speak to them. And I know that's hard. Some of you would say, well, I, I'm, I'm not an articulate person. I'm not an outgoing person. Well, that brings me to my next objection. Number three, I wouldn't know what to say. I wouldn't know what to say, you tell me. I, I don't know the Bible that well. I have good intentions of learning the scriptures, but I just haven't gotten there yet. And partially, I blame preachers, preachers like me, because we get up here and we try to show off by quoting from the Greek and we, we come up with these sermons and, and we, we make it sound like we are these super spiritual people because we've been ordained and we've been to seminary. And the truth is, you have the same scriptures that I do. And you're filled with the same Holy Spirit that I am. And God can use you just like he uses me. 
Notice in the story we read, God did not make Elisha the story of the hero. He made four unnamed lepers the story, the heroes, right? God loves to use people who aren't quote-unquote qualified. And I know people will say, yeah, it would be better if, if we did some witnessing training. I grew up with that. Every so often, we'd have a pastor who'd come through and say, we need to do a witness training for the church. Y'all probably grew up that way too, many of you, if you grew up in a Baptist church or evangelical church. Well, okay, I'm going to train you right now. You ready? Here's your witness training. Do you know the story of Jesus? I don't, I don't mean, can you write a book on it, but do you know the basic outline, the Sunday school version? Could you tell about how he was born and lived and did miracles and died and rose again? Do you know that story? Number two, do you know the story of how you became a believer? What was happening in your life at the time that made you receptive to the gospel? Who was it who shared it with you? Uh, what, what changed in your life over the years since then? Okay, if you can answer those two questions, you're trained. You are, a, you are an equipped witness for the gospel. Now, I'm not saying that's the only way to share the gospel. There are plenty of ways. But if you can tell people the story of Jesus and you can tell people how his story changed your story, you're equipped. Because the great thing about that is no one can tell you it's not true because it's your story. The most, the most foaming at the mouth, mouth atheist will be stopped dead in his tracks when he hears you say, here's how Jesus' story changed my story. Now, that doesn't mean they're going to become a believer, but a seed will have been planted. You can do this. You can accomplish this. And that brings me to number four. Objection number four. I'm afraid they'll ask me questions I don't know how to answer. You know what? You're right. From long experience, I can tell you, no matter how many classes you go to, no matter how many times you read the Bible straight through from Genesis to Revelation, you will get questions, you will get objections, you will get doubts expressed, you will get statements expressed that you won't be prepared for. That is going to happen. You know how you handle it? With honesty. For goodness sakes, don't fake it. Don't bluff. Don't pretend to be smarter than you are. This is not about winning an argument. You simply say, that's a very good question. I, I appreciate you bringing that up because that's something I've never thought of. Do you mind? Can I, can I take a couple of days to think about that, pray about that, and do some research and get back with you? And then do exactly that. Do your research. Pray. Sit down with the members of your life group and work through it together. You're going to grow because of that. Your faith is going to stretch. And when you come back to that person, they may not become a believer simply because you've come up with an answer to their question, but they will see that Christians who they think of as being closed-minded are actually willing to learn and grow. They'll see that the gospel, which they think of as a fairy tale, actually has answers to the questions that they have. See, the key is to love them instead of seeing them as an enemy. When they come up with a question, we're not trying to win a debate. We're not trying to put them in their place. We're seeking truth just like they are. Objection number five. I can't think of anyone in my life I can share my faith with. And I know this is a big one. 
Because I've heard that from some of you. You've said to me, Jeff, I know, I know the Lord wants me to be loving people who don't know Christ, but the truth is everybody I know, everybody I, everybody I spend time with already follows Jesus. And that's not surprising because Christians aren't the only ones who do this. It's human nature to surround yourself with people like you. Which on a separate note is part of the reason why we still have a racial problem in our country. And it flows both ways. We, everybody likes to be around people who thinks like them. So that means you and I have to be intentional. We have to make decisions to start relationships with people who aren't like us. See, I get it. I know, I know what you mean. You know, I, I have a really hard time sharing my faith at work. I mean, I ask Alan Armstrong all the time. He, he insists he's saved. So I don't, I don't know what to do. And, and the truth is, all of us have people in our lives who don't know Jesus. They're, they're out there by the hundreds. And we know their faces. We know their names. The problem is we've forgotten how to start a relationship. We're always in a hurry. We're staring at our smartphone. We've got our earbuds in our ears. We've forgotten how to actually have relationships with people. And that means you and I have to take the risk the great big social risk to walk across the street where our neighbor is raking his, his leaves. Maybe bring a rake with you. He'll appreciate that. But go across the, the street and talk to him. To, to choose to engage that unfriendly guy who works in the cubicle next to yours or that shy kid uh, in your class or that person who just moved into the neighborhood and doesn't have any friends yet, to engage those people, to, to actually go further in your relationship with the person who you know by basically, hey, how are you? We've got a lot of, hey, how are you relationships in our lives. All of us do. But to choose to linger for a moment with one of those people and to just get to the bottom of, How's it going in your life? Tell me about yourself. Where are you from? Do you have any family? How can I pray for you? And when you start those relationships, you have to understand that that doesn't, that doesn't take a minute. That doesn't take an hour. That takes days, weeks, months. That's a commitment, but it's worth it. That's how people come to know Christ these days. They're not coming to know Christ for the most part in one-off conversations with someone who bumps into them in the, in the middle of nowhere and says, hey, do you know that if you died tonight, you'd go to hell if you don't repent? That's biblically true, but most people aren't being saved through hearing that biblically true statement these days. They're not being saved because they go to a stadium and listen to an evangelist or because they see something on TV or pick up a tract on the, on the ground. They're, they're getting saved because they're choosing because a Christian is choosing to love them over a long period of time and to break down their barriers, their objections, the stereotypes they have about us. And I know, I know some of you would say to me, Jeff, you don't understand. I'm an introvert. What you're asking me to do terrifies me. And I understand that. I'm not an introvert myself, but people I love are, and I know that's real. But I also know there are a lot of people out there in the world who are just desperate for someone to reach out to them. Desperate for one person to be their friend. And if you take that step, there's a chance you'll get blown off. There's a chance you'll get the cold shoulder. But if you keep on, you're going to run into people who are so grateful to finally have a friend. And in the course of that friendship, there will come that moment when they'll start to ask those spiritual questions. 
You know, why did, if, if God is real, why did he let this happen to me? Here's what I've heard about Christians. Is that true? I saw this story on the news about this church that did this crazy thing. Is that the way your church is? Here's something I heard about the Bible. Is, is that really the, what, what y'all believe? And that's your opportunity. Not to get into an argument, not to put them in their place, but to just say, let me tell you what I believe. Let me tell you what Christ has done for me. 110 years ago, 20 lifeboats were lowered into the Titanic, or lowered from the Titanic into the ocean, and one came back to rescue the people who were drowning and freezing. Four lepers standing outside the city found the treasure of a lifetime and didn't keep it to themselves, became heroes. We don't know their names, but they saved an entire city. Is that how we're going to be? Is that what First Baptist Conroe is going to be? Are we going to be a church full of those kinds of people? The lifeboat that's looking for those who are, who are drowning? The people who go back into the city and, and take them the good news? Are we going to be like those 19 lifeboats that just say, well, thank God that's not me in that water. Sure is good to be saved. Please understand, I'm not telling you you have to be a foreign missionary. If God has called you to mission work, then go and do it and God bless you. But most of us, that's not our calling. And I'm not telling you, you have to cold call your neighbors and, and present the gospel to them today. I'm saying be willing to engage people in relationship and to be their friend for as long as it takes. Understanding not everybody you befriend is going to be saved, but knowing, knowing you're going to do what you can to, to show them the love of Christ. I'm asking you to pray and say, Lord, show me the people around me who need friendship with someone who's not a believer. I didn't say that right. Lord, show me the people around me who need friendship with someone who knows you. There we go. And just see where that leads. Do practical things to show them love when they go through a tough time. Call them up and say, I'm praying for you. Eventually, when those spiritual, relations, spiritual conversations come up, trust God to give you the words to say. Tell the story of how Jesus' story changed your story forever and let God do the rest. That's what he lives to do. Don't keep the good news to yourself.